If I had known Jim was leading singing today, I could have preached on heaven, I guess. Uh, I guess when you live out in Arizona, you think about living in a place that hot, you think about heaven a lot. What we're going to look at today is Jesus reintroducing himself to his own hometown, that town of Nazareth. We know Jesus was not exactly what the Jews were looking for in a Messiah. He did not fit the ad they would have taken out in the paper for a Messiah had they taken an ad out in the paper for a Messiah. They were obviously looking for a king. You remember in John 6, 1 through 13, when Jesus fed the 5,000? And then in verses 14 and 15, it said that they would take him by force to make him a king. That's what they were looking looking for was a king. But it was a king based on an us versus them mentality. It was not just a king. It was, as Pilate would point out, it was a king of the Jews. By that I mean it was Jews versus Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, John the Baptist would say to those gathered around him that uh, wanted to be baptized, but they were Pharisees, he said, you know God could have these stones raised up children of Abraham. But it was not just Jews versus Gentiles. It was, it was Jews versus sinners and publicans. You know, in Luke 15, that story of the prodigal son is told after they had criticized Jesus because he had been together with those publicans and sinners in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. But it was not just Jews versus Gentiles and Jews versus publicans and sinners. It was even uh, Pharisees versus Sadducees inside of Judaism. For example, in Acts 23, verses 6 or 8, you remember that Paul was about to be uh, called into question, and he said, uh, listen, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I, the reason I'm called to question this day is because of the hope of the resurrection. And that divided the crowd. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees, and uh, Luke goes on to point out that the, Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in angels and resurrection, but the Sadducees denied both, and they began to shout at one another, and Paul sort of made it out alive that day because of it. This is far from the Jesus who God sent in the world to actually be the Messiah because Jesus was not a them versus us Savior. He was a Savior of all mankind. He died for all. He lived for all. And he was resurrected for all. In Luke chapter 4, he points this out. Now remember, Nazareth was his own hometown. It was where he was brought up. So they were the people who you would think would know him best. And in Luke 4, before we get there, let's set the context for Luke 4. In Luke chapter 3, you remember Jesus was baptized by John, Luke 3, 21 and 22. And God actually announces from heaven, this is my beloved son. Then Luke does something amazing. He's going to give us the genealogy of Christ in Luke 3. Not like Matthew does in Matthew 1, but he starts it in Luke 3. But instead of doing what a Jew would think he would do, that would be trace Christ back to David to prove he's the son of David, or trace Christ back to Abraham to prove he's the son of Abraham. Luke does something crazy. He traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. Adam. 
Now, if you don't believe there was a literal Adam, you've got to have a problem with Jesus being descended from him, I know. But Luke didn't have a problem with no literal Adams. He believed that Jesus was actually descended from Adam and traced that genealogy back. But what does that say to the Jew who thinks it's all about Abraham? It's confusing, isn't it? Then Jesus was taken out in Luke 4 to the, to the desert where he was tempted of the devil after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he passed the temptation that Adam failed in in Luke 4, 1 through 13. Then, verse 14 and 15 of Luke 4, he goes in the rest of Galilee. Uh, notice what it says in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. He taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. Galilee was the area that was 50 miles from north to south and about 25 miles from east to west. Josephus, the Roman historian who was a Jewish historian, the Jewish historian he wrote for the, for the Roman government about Judaism, was governor of Galilee, and he claimed that there were 204 towns of not less than 15,000 people. The mathematics on that comes up to Galilee was just in the towns over 3 million people, 3 million 6,000 uh, uh, 6, if you do the math on it. Now, Josephus might have been prone to exaggeration from time to time. However, the idea is it was a very large area he was going around. Josephus then would go on to say of the Galileans that he governed. He said they were fond of innovation, disposed to changes, delighted in seditions, quick to follow a leader who would begin an insurrection, quick in temper and given to quarreling. In other words, they were looking for a Messiah, but their Messiah would lead an insurrection against Rome. Now Luke does not choose to spend a lot of time on the success that Jesus had in Galilee in verses 14 and 15. He limits it to two verses. You, you would think Luke might do a whole book on how Jesus was accepted in Galilee, or at least a chapter, but only two verses on a on the acceptance of Jesus. And this next section, much longer, talks about what we would call, what man would call at least, the failure of Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. What he's showing here is that Jesus is the answer to the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That Nathaniel asked in John 1.46. Yes, Jesus is good and he came out of Nazareth. So there's the context. Next, let's look at childhood in 4.16. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This was the town Jesus was brought up in. He'd been born in Bethlehem, but then went to Egypt for a little while. But you remember that they moved back to their hometown of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was raised, or as we might say, reared. And the people of his own hometown knew him best. They remembered when he went to kindergarten. They remembered if he ate glue or not. They remembered when he colored inside or outside the lines in kindergarten. They, they remembered that story when he was somewhere about 12 that's told in Luke chapter 2. The one time in his entire life he almost got into trouble. You remember that Jesus was... As their custom was, they went on Passover down to Jerusalem. And you remember that the family came back... 
men with the men, the women with women, and everybody thought Jesus was with the other partner in the marriage. And you remember they finally figured out he wasn't there, so they went back, and where did they find him? They found him talking to the rabbis and answering and asking questions, and the rabbis were impressed. Then this young boy who was reared by a carpenter father began to go out into Galilee and preach. And when he preached, it says he became famous. Is that not what your text says? The fame of him went through the region around about. He was the rabbi from Nazareth, preaching all over Galilee, making a name for himself, becoming popular. The people liked to hear sermons. In fact, Matthew will tell us that he taught, in part, they liked his sermon because he didn't teach like anybody else. He taught as one having authority, not like the scribes taught. But here he was, a self-made rabbi from Nazareth. He didn't go to school in Jerusalem. He didn't become a rabbi the normal way. He was a, the, the apprentice probably to his carpenter father. Yet, he was a famous rabbi. When I say rabbi, I'm just using the word Nicodemus used in John 3. Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. Where rabbi just literally means my teacher. So that was his childhood, and he comes back, and it says, as his custom was. We get from the context of the childhood to the custom. As his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for a read. His custom was to attend the synagogue when the synagogue was open. And it was open every Sabbath day. Now, Jesus usually could break up a synagogue service. In fact, Luke tells about six visits he made to the synagogue, five of which ended not what we would call very peaceful. The only one that did was the one at the end of this chapter 4, which is told in 4:31 through 37. But all the other ones ended with controversy. The temple was for sacrifice and the synagogue was for teaching. Let me tell you how the synagogue service would go. They would start off with what's called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, where they would recite together, The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord God, thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. You teach it when you rise up, when you lie down, and so forth in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Then there were prayers that were offered. Then there was singing that was offered up to God. Interestingly enough, without instruments, the temple did have instruments, the synagogues did not. Then there was a reading time from Torah, meaning the books of Moses. Then there was a reading from the prophets. In fact, if you hold your finger there and flip over to Acts 15, you see an allusion to this practice. Acts 15:21, talking about the Gentiles hearing in the synagogue. He says, Moses of old time hath in every city then that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Uh, now, we know in the second century, we don't know about the first century, but we know in the second century in the synagogue, they had a, a, a process where they would read from the Torah, the law, and the writings. And we know that they would read the Bible in order because they didn't have a written copy of the Bible. Gutenberg had not invented his print and press, and Xerox had not yet invented his copier. I don't know if he invented the copy or not. I just made that part up. But the idea is you couldn't just purchase a Bible 
down at Walmart for two ninety five or whatever they cost, or at Books a Million for seven dollars, or a good leather copy online for anywhere from twelve dollars to three hundred dollars or whatever somebody's willing to pay for one. Didn't come that way. Most of the people who were exposed to Scripture, it had to be through the writings and the readings at the synagogue. So they would read through it in a systematic way through those three sections, at least again, in the second century. We don't really know about the first, whether they did it that way or not. Then after that, there was a sermon called a word of exhortation, as Peter was told, or Paul was told in Acts 13, 15. If you have a word of exhortation after the reading in the synagogue, he said, say on. Then they would close with a benediction, which was the priestly benediction of number 6, 24 through 26, which, which basically says um, that uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and so forth. That's how the synagogue service went. So here's the claim in verse 17 through 21. It says that his manner, his habit was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And on this day, since he was the visiting out-of-town rabbi, they asked him to do the reading. And after he did the reading, he was going to be the one to deliver the word of exhortation. So what does he do? He reads. Now, again, if they were systematically reading through the Bible, then God providentially had it to be that Isaiah 61 was the reading that day. If not, if they weren't doing that yet, then Jesus took the scroll and flipped over until it got to Isaiah 61. Regardless, Isaiah 61 is what's read, as has already been read to us this morning by Antoine. There was delivered him the book, the scroll, of the prophet Isaiah. When he opened the book, he found the place where it is written. And he read from Isaiah 61. Again, he probably read more than just these two verses. And the sermon was obviously more than just one sentence. Because the text says in verse 21, he began to say it to them. And then gives Luke's summary of the sermon. But regardless, this is the meat of the sermon. This is the, this is the text that he expounded. It says, first of all, of Christ, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he had anointed me. That word translated anointed, you might recognize. It's the word Christ. You remember that prophets were anointed. 1 Kings 19, verse 16, Elijah is told that he's supposed to go and anoint Elisha. You remember that priests were anointed, Exodus 40 and verse 15. Aaron the high priest and his sons were anointed. And you remember that kings were even anointed. In fact, in the story of the bramble back in Judges 9, you remember that that story was told about Abimelech, Gideon's son. And, and the story was told that, that the, the, the big giant trees anointed the bush. Judges 9-8, you remember that David was anointed, 1 Samuel 16-13. So prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, and Jesus called the anointed one because he was to be prophet, priest, and king. Psalm 2 and verse 2 is sort of the background for the way they thought of the Messiah as the anointed one. In fact, in Psalm 2 and verse 2, if you go back there and just make a quick note, it says, The kings of the earth sit together, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, and against his Messiah, against his anointed. Then it said that he was anointed to do something, not just to sit there. But he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. 
Now, remember that the Jews just totally didn't get Jesus at all. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, for example, he says that he had to be born again. You remember what Nicodemus said? How is that even possible? I'm an old man. How can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, you don't know what, you, what I'm even saying. I'm talking about art thou a teacher in Israel, and don't you know these things? You don't understand that I'm talking about spiritual things? Well, that was the reason he didn't understand. He was a teacher in Israel. In other words, he was trained in their way of looking at Scripture and the way they looked at Scripture, when they saw a promise from God and it said God was going to bless them, you know what they saw? A Rolex, greenbacks, and a Mercedes Benz. That's all they could see. You know why? Because all they thought they needed was material blessings. They had no need of spiritual blessings because they already had it all. You ever have somebody at Christmas and you would like to buy them something, but you can't because they already got everything? The Jews thought of themselves as that way spiritually. God would like to give us something spiritually. Maybe, but we've already got everything, so what's he going to get us? I've already got my spiritual Samsung and spiritual iPhone. What's God going to get me this year? He can't get me anything spiritual, so you better get me the real iPhone and the Samsung, right? That's what they were thinking. So when Jesus said... Preach the gospel to the poor, they heard financially poor. Jesus is obviously talking about the poor in spirit that he talked about in Matthew 5 and verse 3. I'll show you in a minute that it has to be spiritual. Then Jesus said, and to heal the brokenhearted. Now, what does Jesus mean by heal the brokenhearted? Now, does anybody think he's talking about cardiothoracic surgery? Raise your hand. See, I told you he was talking about spiritual things. He's talking about people who needed healing. But the problem was the Jews didn't see themselves as spiritually sick. In Luke 5, 31, Jesus said, They that are whole need not a physician. But they that are sick, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5, 31 and 32. In other words, they didn't see their spiritual need. Next, he said, I'm called to preach deliverance or liberty to the captives. They didn't see themselves as captives. Spiritually, they did see themselves a little bit as captives. Physically, that's what they were wanting was the Messiah to throw off the Roman yoke. But in John 8, 33, they would say to Jesus, We be Abraham's seed, we've never been in bondage. And Jesus goes on to say, You don't even know you're in bondage to sin right now. To recover the sight of the blind. Again, what's he talking about? Well, turn with me to John 12. Verse 39 and 40. There Jesus says, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts. They should not see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. Be converted, and I should heal them. Does Isaiah mean that God caused everybody in Israel to not be able to see physically? No. 
they were blind spiritually and they did not know it. You know, when you're blind physically, you figure it out after a while. It might take you a while. As you slowly lose your sight, you may not even know you're losing your sight. It's not so much with sight as with hearing, right? We don't know we're getting deaf. TV has to be just a little louder, but we don't know it. We may not know we're losing our sight. But spiritually speaking, they were blind. They didn't have any idea. To set at liberty those that are bruised. See, they didn't see themselves as bruised. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, look at what Jesus has to say there. Talking about the Sabbath day. He departed and went to the synagogue. And behold, there was a man with his hand withered. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? That they might accuse him. So here's a man that's got part of a hand. His hand's all withered up. And they point to Jesus and say, hey, uh, it's the Sabbath day. Could you heal him? Is it okay to heal him on the Sabbath day? And why did they do that? Because they knew he'd want to heal him. And if they, he healed him, then they would accuse him. And Joe Jesus, what does he do? Before he heals him, he asks a question. What man shall there be among you that hath one sheep that fall in a pit on the Sabbath day, and he won't get him out? Well, the answer was, every one of them would get their sheep out of the pit if he fell in the pit on the Sabbath day. It wouldn't matter if it was the Sabbath day. i got to get him out. He then says, how much more then is a man better than sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day. So he told the man, stretch forth his hand. He stretched it forth. It was just like the other ones. See, they didn't know that they were bruised, that they had a physical malady. They didn't realize it. And then he says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, verse 19. This is the time when God will accept us. Paul alludes to it in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. As opposed to the time when it will be too late, which is the part of Isaiah 62 that Jesus did read. He left off that one phrase. The vengeance part, because that's not his present job. John three sixteen and 17 tell us that. He came this time to save the world, next time to judge the world. John twelve forty eight tied in with it. But the word that should translate it acceptable, you'll hear it again in your New Testament. In fact, you'll hear it as acceptable, at least in the King James Version. Where do you hear the word acceptable besides here? I know. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Peter's at the house of Cornelius. What does he say? Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But he that does what? He that worketh righteous, the same is what? Accepted of him. Interesting word choice there, isn't it? Acceptable. Gentile. Acceptable. Gentile. More on that in a minute. So he skips the vengeance part. Then what does he do? He puts up the scroll in verse 20. Hands it back to the guy that's in charge. The guy that would roll the scriptures back up, clean the building. He's also the guy that would announce from the top of the building with three blasts of the trumpet. The Sabbath day was there. It's time to attend the synagogue. And then what does he do next? It says he sat down. 
Now, when he sat down, he doesn't mean, the text is not telling us that he went back into the audience and sat in a pew. He sat down because what they would do, as in Nehemiah 8, when the scripture was read, everyone would rise. And then the scripture would be expounded. And what would happen is the, the teacher would sit down. We still talk about a chair of a professor at some college based on that old understanding. In fact, in Matthew 5, it says, before he began the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down to teach. Same thing here. So when he sits down, he's not sitting down and saying, I wonder if they're going to call on me to say anything. He sits down knowing he's about to speak. And obviously this is a summary of the sermon, as I pointed out before, because it says in Luke 4 that he began to say unto them. But his whole sermon can be summarized in Luke's one point. And that point is, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, this passage from Isaiah 61, which is back in the servant section of Isaiah. Here's the servant section. We're familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But this whole section, chapter 42 also in this same section, is a servant section. And the question was among Jewish people, who is the servant? Is it Isaiah? Is it Israel? Is it somebody else? Is it the Messiah? Most of them didn't believe it was the Messiah. You know why? Because they knew Isaiah 53 said that whoever the servant was had to suffer. So they thought in their mind, probably the servant is Israel and we're suffering until the king, the Messiah, comes and removes the suffering from us. The king will make the cup transfer from us, the cup of suffering. That's what they thought. But what Jesus says is, I'm the servant. I'm fulfilling this scripture this day. In other words, not only am I fulfilling it, but today is the acceptable year of the Lord. Today is the day God is willing to receive you into his house. And then you got their communication in verse 22. You know what they said at the back door on the way out? Good sermon. Look at verse 20 there. Or 22. All bear witness and wonder at the gracious words which proceed out of his mouth. In other words, they all said, good sermon. And then they were amazed, really, at who it came from because he was the carpenter's son, not the rabbi's son. They all knew he'd grown up without getting into a lot of trouble, but this is the hometown boy that made good. At least that's what they said. But you know what people say isn't always what they're thinking, is it? See, their communication is in verse 22. Good sermon. Amazing that you came from Joseph. But that's what they communicated. But Jesus was involved in cognition with them in verse 23 because he knew what they were thinking. And he gives a proverb. He says, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever you've done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. See, the proverb means, basically, you should correct others before you correct yourself. In fact, 
In Luke 23, 25, they would cast it into his teeth in another form when they said he saved others, let him save himself. Same idea. They all understood that everything Jesus had just said was physical and not spiritual. What I mean by that? He just said, this day is a scriptural filled in your eyes. What eyes? What scripture? The one that says that I am here to give good messages to the poor, thereby to enrich them. To heal those who are brokenhearted, preach deliverance of the captive, recover the sight of the blind, sit in liberty to them and their bruised. In other words, they think he means that he's going to be a Messiah who's going to get them out of the mess they're in. And again, as I've said before, he'll be just like David, only without Bathsheba. He'll be good David. They didn't understand anything he said. Why? I submit to you the reason they didn't understand these were spiritual promises is they did not see a spiritual need amongst themselves, only a physical need. They knew about his miracles in other places. Now they wanted him to do some miracles here. You've been doing all this healing. You talk about healing in verse 18. You've been doing all this healing all over Galilee. That's all we hear. We've been reading the Nazareth news about you. And you were just storing an arm up here and cast out a demon here. And this one's raised from the dead. We hadn't seen you do nothing here. And you're telling me you're fulfilling the scripture where you say this day all this blessing is going to come upon us. We ain't seen nothing. That's what they were saying inside. As they were saying, good sermon. Appreciate it. So Jesus got into the crystal ball in verse 24 through 27. In other words, he knew the future. He said, Verily I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Jesus knew that he could not convince them that he was who he really was. There was no way they were going to accept it. Jesus could stand right there Throw a rod down, pick up a servant, turn water into wine, turn the Red Sea into emptiness, then turn around and turn it into blood right in front of their face, and they would say, Oh, aren't you Joseph's son? There was nothing he could do to convince them that he was the Son of God because they could only see him as Joseph's son. That's why he doesn't do any miracles. Because they wouldn't do any good. The point of the miracle was not just alone to heal somebody. The point of the miracle was to authenticate the message. And if there's no message authentication going to come from the miracle, there's no point doing the miracle. So he says, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, if he would have stopped right there, they would have said, yep, you're right, we're not going to accept you. But he didn't stop there. He just, he just can't stop. Like Jeremiah, God's word was a fire in his bones. So he continues on. He says, let me illustrate what I mean for you when I say prophets are rejected, not accepted. 
I'll give you two illustrations. Illustration number one, Elijah. In 24, in verse 25, 26, he said, But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when great famine was out of the land, and none of them was the one to whom Elias was sent, said to save to Seraphim, the city of Sidon, and that woman was a widow. That story is told in 1 Kings 17, 9 through 16. Now, if you remember in the context, not only was Elijah sent away from Israel into Sidon, into Gentile territory, to a widow, and that widow, you remember, was tested. This is the last thing I got to eat. This is the last box of cereal in the pantry. And, and Elijah said to her, just pour Tony the tiger out into my bowl. She said, but it's the bottom of the box. He said, just pour Tony the tiger out of my bowl and then give me the last of that milk you got there. And I know you already killed the cow. Just pour it up. And she does. And you remember what happened? He said, they're great. <laughs> and then after he said, they're great, you remember what else happened? The woman looked back in the box and now the box is full and the milk carton is full. And the milkman ain't got to come anymore. And she just keeps pouring Tony the Tiger up every day and eating him. In other words, she had given God's messenger honor and God blessed her for it. Now what has Jesus just said to them? They said, you're going to, he said, you're going to say to me, do stuff here. I can't do anything here. You wouldn't accept me anyway. You're like Israel in the Old Testament. Elijah couldn't do anything there, so he had to go to Sidon to do it. Go to the Gentile, to a widow, an outcast. Now here's another little tidbit about that, if you remember. It wasn't just some natural occurrence that they were without food and having a drought in the land in the time. You remember that it was someone who called on God to bring that drought about, and that was Elijah. In other words, you reject a prophet, you're in a dangerous position. You could starve to death for it. And again, Jesus is talking about what happened in the old covenant, which is the physical covenant, but he's really talking about what's going to happen under the new covenant. They're going to have a famine of the word of the Lord in their city. Secondly, he said, let me tell you another story. There was a guy named Elisha. Verse 27. Many lepers were in the country in Israel at the time of Elias, the prophet. None of them were cleansed, but there was Naaman the Syrian. In other words, again, 2 Kings 5. He was a Gentile. Jesus, Elisha went to a Gentile. Not a Jew. A lot of Jewish people run around with leprosy. None of them were cleansed. Not only was he a Gentile, but he was a warrior. In fact, he was the head of the army of the Syrians who were their enemy at the time. And in addition to that, he was even unclean. You talk about an outsider from Israel. Paul would describe him in Ephesians 2 using the words like this. He's without hope without God in the world. In fact, his place was so pagan 
that when he talked to Elisha, he said, I've got to go back home, but I'm going to take some dirt from here so there can be some holy dirt in my land. I want to worship on it. Now, what Jesus was saying was, you are worse as the descendants of Israel than the Gentile woman who was a widow and an outsider and Naaman, the Syrian leper. And just like Elias and Elijah didn't do anything for the people of the land, I don't have anything to give to you either because they were rejected and you have rejected me as one of the areas of Messiah prophet. Now, what do you think that did? Well, now there's conflict, 28 through 32. All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Now, they went from good sermon to fill with wrath that quick. Again, Jesus not only made the point, I tell you the truth, this prophet is not without honor in his own country. Again, if he had stopped there, I guarantee you, they'd have still been thinking it. They wouldn't have done anything about it. But when he comes with his two illustrations, that's when they were filled with wrath. They rose up. They thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon the city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They were going to kill him. Why? Because of what he said. Not really for what he said. It's for who he said it about and how it stung. You know, some things just sting more than other things. You ever go to the doctor and get a shot? You know, some shots hurt more than other shots. That penicillin shot when you were a kid, it's painful. That, that shot that you get cortisone, y'all ever had one of them? It don't just burn you up then. I've had two in my life and I was up 24 hours with both of them. It'll mess you up. There's some medicines that just sting more than others. And these scriptures stung them hard. And they got so angry then in less than five verses, they went from good sermon to killing the preacher. What does Jesus do? God protects him. It's not his time yet. Passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And he goes to Capernaum. Now what did they say in verse 23 in their hearts? What we have heard you do in Capernaum, do this here. So where does he go when he leaves them? <laughs> Twisting that knife. Right back to Capernaum. <laughs> you got to love it. See, Jesus turned to teach more Jews because Matthew fifteen twenty four says, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he goes to Capernaum. And this makes them jealous. Uh, and he astonishes them with his word, verse 32, and his power. 
And this becomes the center of his ministry in Galilee. Luke 7, 1, he goes back there. Matthew 9, 1 refers to Capernaum as his own city. It was the city of Peter where his mother-in-law was healed. It seems to be the city of Matthew. At least it's where Matthew was working as a tax collector in Matthew 9 when he was called. But regardless, it's the center now of his ministry in Galilee, not his hometown, but his new city. Why? Because they had rejected him. But you know what's worse than that? What's worse than that is what happens when they reject the apostles. See, when Jesus is rejected in one Jewish city, you know what he does? He goes to another Jewish city. Turn with me to the end of the book of Acts and look what Paul does. Verse 24. Acts 28. Some believe the things were spoken and some believe not. When they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that Paul had spoken, the, spoken one word, he said, Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, hearing you shall hear and shall not understand. Seeing you shall see and not perceive. This people's heart is waxed growth, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed. Lest any time they should see with their ears, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. See, what Paul would do, he would go to a city in Acts 17, for example, as his manner was in Thessalonica, and preach there for three Sabbath days. Then when they kicked him out of the synagogue, he went to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would hear it. And that's really what bothers them about what Jesus said, because as much as they pretended not to get it, their reaction showed they got it. They got it. They understood what he was saying. Because what he was saying was this. You're looking for a king. You're looking for a king of the Jews. You're looking for a king that's going to cause the Jews to reign over the entire world together. Some people are still looking for that kind of king. Right here in the city of Jacksonville. They're preaching about him this morning. They think they found him in Revelation. But he's not there in Revelation. Every nation, every tribe bows before him in Revelation. But that's what they thought they had. And what Jesus is saying is that's not what you've got. You've got me. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. And let me tell you something. If you Jews reject me, I'll go to the Gentiles just like Elijah did, just like Elisha did. That's what they didn't want to hear. Because they had been raised to think they were God's chosen people. And God was going to deal with man by dealing with Jews. But Jesus said, oh no, God is going to deal with man through me. I'm the suffering servant, not Israel. So, what's all that about? Well, all that's about Jesus reintroducing himself to his hometown. They had no idea who had grown up with him, did they? Some of them, no doubt, in that audience had been in sixth grade with him, if there was a sixth grade. Some of them had seen him growing up, but they didn't see him for who he was, and they still couldn't. Now, the question for us is, though, do we see him for who he is? 
Are we still looking for the same blessings they were looking for? If we're looking for those physical blessings, there's only one reason we're looking for them. It's because we think that's our greatest need. You know, whatever your greatest need is what you're going to seek first. You realize that? If you go to eat and you are as thirsty as you can be, you might even say to them, just bring me my water now. I'll order in a minute. I've been outside working in the heat. Yet, if you've been working in the heat and been drinking the Gatorades all day and you go in, you say, I'm ready to order now. Why? Just hungry. I had plenty to drink. I'm just hungry now. See, you're drawn to your greatest need. Now the question is, what do you see as your greatest need? Are you drawn to Jesus as Savior? Or are you drawn to Joel Osteen's version of Jesus? The one who came so you wouldn't have nothing wrong with your life. If you need it, God's got it for you. He's got your Mercedes. He's got your town center. He's got everything you want if you'll accept Him. But that's not the message of the Scripture. Amen. The message of the Scripture is, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come and take me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest unto your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus offers you liberty from sin, not liberty from your physical oppression. He never offered that because that's not what man needs. Your seventh invitation today, you can obey the gospel by hearing God's word, believing it, repenting of your sins, confessing Christ and being baptized for the remission of sin. And if you've done that in the past and gone back to the world, God calls you back to him today. Come as we stand and as we sing.